Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. My brother and I, we were actually sitting down at, we're about five or six years old in the dining room, eating like Roman noodles and cut up hot dogs. And then as soon as we go upstairs, a bullet comes right through the back patio where we were sitting. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate. I'm very excited to have my guest on today. He's a, kind of a local legend around town here. I think everybody in Indianapolis knows who my guest is. And so without further ado, it, Sterling White, he's the principal of Sonder Investment Group. He has 18.9 million assets under management, which includes 400 apartment units throughout the Midwest. He's also a Bigger Pockets contributor. And he's a former world record attendee. So we'll have to dig into that a little bit because that's a very interesting, fun fact. So thank you, Sterling, for being on the show. Yeah. So everyone go ahead and strap your seatbelts in and also tie your shoes as tight as you can, because we're going to take you along for a ride. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, man. Well, awesome. So yeah, I want to start there. I want to start with your story. So help our listeners understand a little bit more about you and maybe sprinkle in a little bit about that world record too. Oh gosh. So yeah, quite a bit. I'll I'll give everyone a cliff note version. So born and raised here in Indianapolis, Indiana, Kent mentions a legend. I don't know about that. So much more to go, of course, but born on the not so good parts of the city where you wouldn't want to walk your dog at night or even during the day. And when people map out Indianapolis, they would put that in a red zone. But in essence, is single mother, fraternal twin brother, grew up in Section 8 housing, welfare, food stamps. And I just remember at one point, Kent, my brother and I, we were actually sitting down at, we're about five or six years old in the dining room eating like Roman noodles and cut up hot dogs. And then as soon as we go upstairs, a bullet comes right through the back patio where we were sitting. So I may not be here. He may not be here, but just ended up using that as fuel versus being a product of the environment. Entrepreneurship came into existence for me. That whole spirit was I had to figure out a way to earn money in the legal sense. First product was Kool-Aid. Second was Pokemon cards. And Fast forward, how I got started in real estate. This was 2009, construction side. Shortly after that, got into the investing at 23 years old, bought a single family house, no money out of pocket, 
Fast forward from that, 150 single families. And then in 2017, made the entire shift to multifamily. And the very first deal I acquired in 2017 was a 46 unit deal. And yeah, fast forward to where I am now is the most I was at 600 units and have since sold some and now just under 400 units at this present time. So more than happy to go back to the world record attempt, but I know there's quite a bit to unpack there. No, man, that's obviously an awesome story of resilience and of just that the entrepreneurial mindset, which I love. I mean, you were hustling from the beginning with the Kool-Aid and Pokemon cards. So <laughs> you're probably a force to be reckoned with out there in the, in the schoolyard. So a couple things there. One, yeah. Okay. So what is the world record? What was the attempt? I just, I'm super curious. Okay. So I read this book called The 4-Hour Work Week, which is by Tim Ferriss. And along with other practical things I got from it was picking a goal that scares the absolute. This is probably not. So I'll keep it crap out of you. So I don't (laughs) want to have the E sign next to this episode on iTunes. But so from that is I picked one goal that really scared the living crap out of me. And that was attempting a world record. And so the record was world's fastest fireman carry mile. So what I do is I'm not a fireman. For those of you who are curious, I just carry someone in a fireman's position. Those of you who are visually seeing this, you can actually do it. Those of you who are not, you'll have to hop on YouTube or somewhere Mm -hmm. else. But in essence, I carry some of equivalent weight, fireman's position, and I have to beat a specific time, which was 11 and a half minutes. So that was that attempt. A year and a half, I was training for it. Day of the event, I'll just uh, spark no virgin. So I dropped the person halfway through the attempt. So the attempt was over. But what I ended up learning from that experience was one, failure is not so bad. There was newscaster, there was family and friends out there, a huge event. And then two is there was so many adversities that I had to face leading up to that. One, my back went out three months into the actual training. So I was bed rested about two weeks, two to three weeks. And then also two weeks prior to the actual event, the person I was training with actually backed out. But I just kept pursuing, pursuing, and then went for that attempt. And yeah, it was a huge unlock and a light bulb for me. And what is it? Those highlights of my journey. Oh man, that's awesome. I think there's so many good lessons there, right? That you call out and I think taking those into your career is probably why you've had the success that you've had. So getting into the in the investing side of things, so you mentioned you went from you had 150 single family homes. Yes, here in Indianapolis and Dayton, Ohio. Would not wow. if I were to go do it again, I would do it again. But I tell you guys, there's a lot because we're self-managing <laughs> at the same time and still acquiring. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that I can't even imagine. So, you know, probably I know the answer to this, but like share with our listeners, what was it that made you make that flip from single to multi and and why has multifamily become your investment choice? The first one is economies of scale. So you have, I've purchased 46 individual homes and one forty that first deal, which was a 46 unit apartment. I'll Mm. tell you that it was a lot more seamless one buyer, multiple doors in one location versus with 46 single families, there was close to about 35 to 40 different transactions. They're all scattered throughout the city of Indianapolis. If maintenance comes in, repairs, you got to go over here, you got to go over there versus with apartment. So it was that. And then also it's just easier to scale in terms of where we were looking to go. 
more efficient through the single families than the multifamily. And then also it's more treated as a business on the multifamily side versus the single family Mm -hmm. from a exit standpoint. Gotcha. So you haven't seen a difference from a return profile. You see fairly similar, but what you have seen are a lot of savings just from expenses and time, it sounds like, right? You talk about economies of scale, driving that home, meaning that you're you're spending less time, less energy, less cost per unit by focusing on multifamily and getting all those doors under one roof, right? Exactly. And when we were on the single family, we had to build a whole entire acquisition team. We still have the same thing on the multifamily, but it wasn't even close to how it was on the single family. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, right on, man. So you got, we kind of left off, you got into multifamily, you're at your 46 units. Then you scale up to, you said you were at 600 at one Mm -hmm. point, right? So talk me through the process as you went from that first 46 and scaled up to the 600. I mean, what was it that, how did you change your process as you went through that? And as you scaled up, I mean, how did business have to change? Yeah, I would say is one had to transition our business from the single family. So no longer own the single families, but also telling the team, hey, we're no longer acquiring those. I'm saying those, but no longer acquiring single family. We're focusing our efforts moving forward to the multifamily. And then also we tweaked and just going direct to owner. That was another big approach that we took too. And just expanding to other markets because there's only a finite of apartments that are in, I would say C plus to B minus neighborhoods Mm -hmm. that are 75 to 160 units. So from that, we could have kept digging into Indianapolis, but from that we decided, okay, let's expand to other markets so we can build that top of the line in terms of the pipeline that way, because the more contacts we make, the more likely it's able to lead to a contract. Yeah, that makes sense. So what was it from a market standpoint as you were looking at- Like Louisville, we expanded to that. Like you've got your multifamily or you've got your 150 single families, you're getting into multifamily. How did you start out deciding which markets you were going to be in? And what are the things that you're looking for in markets to say, hey, that's a market that I want to be in? Yeah. So it is looking for markets very comparable to Indianapolis. So staying in the Midwest and the common ones, economics is job growth, rent growth, population growth, what's the unemployment rate. So looking at those Mm -hmm. measurements, but also the most important thing is the price per door in correlation with the actual rents. Meaning that if average rent on a specific property is 750 or 800, Mm-hmm. We're expected to be all in anywhere between about forty-five to fifty thousand on a per unit basis. So that's what we're looking at. Also in the C plus to B minus neighborhoods, and so we're looking from a top level, the top economics of the market, mm-hmm. and then we go even more deeper and say, okay, these are the neighborhoods. What does it look like on a price per door? Meaning, if if we were in New York and it was renting for, I don't even know if the rents are out there are seven fifty eight hundred. Their price per unit is probably what 150 200 250 mm-hmm. yeah or more or more i imagine yeah well very good so sterling as you're evaluating deals and getting down to the particular property i mean what are the things that you're looking for on that property that make you think this deal is going to be a success i mean are there things as you've acquired your 600 units that you start to see in common among properties that have done well 
Yeah, I would say is that they're mom and pop operators. That's always been our go to in terms of Mm -hmm. one, the operator is mismanaging it and they also have a motivation, a high desire in selling the property, which allows us to solve the problem and then get the property at a discount. And then as far as the rents being anywhere between $75 to $100 in terms of being able to push those up. And then also minimally, I'm a cash flow guy that the it's double digit returns on the cash on cash to our investor partners. And then from a deeper level during due diligence, we're looking how's the crime rate? What's the vacancy rate that's there in that specific location? And then also what is the median income to ensure that it actually does support our increase in the rents as well. But one Mm -hmm. thing is there is a team involved. It's not just myself. And that's always the crucial and vital point because I've made a $1 million mistake on a deal, Kent. And this is a personal lesson for everyone that's out there. Yeah, do tell. This was 156 unit. Luckily, we were still able to acquire it here in Indianapolis in which submit an offer to the owner. This was $7 million. And I was the one doing majority of the underwriting. And once got the team involved, they said, oh, your rents are a little bit too aggressive in what you believe you can push those up to by mm-hmm. about $75. So $75 across 156 units times 12 months that was a huge swing. So ended up having to go back to the seller and they accepted a concession. But still, that's one of those things is why it's important to have a team involved, especially the double check things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the team is critical. And I think glad you had a seller that that was understanding and, and allowed you to come back and, and still get that deal done. But I think finding that out ahead of time before closing the deal, right? I mean, oh, that's, yes, that's exactly. what really matters. I mean, at the end of the day, right? So having that team to support you. Yeah. I can't agree more that that absolutely critical. So you're taking on investors for your projects. I mean, what do you look for in an investor? I would say, and it's for passive investors that are on here and also operators too, is it's during that initial call, we always have phone calls with our investors is it's an interview process. So Mm -hmm. they're asking us questions. We're asking them questions. The first thing is if the person says, I'm looking to get my cash in and out as quickly as possible, that's not a good fit from the get-go. So that's Mm -hmm. one thing. And then also if they want control and say, hey, if the market is hitting the fan or a correction happened, I would like to have say so in terms of, and they're very, what is it, very involved and very mm-hmm. vocal, then that's one of those people that is most likely just not going to be a good fit because we're the professionals. We're the ones that's doing all the day-to-day. We're in the trenches. So those are two key things that we're looking out for. Gotcha. Yeah. So somebody, you've got to be willing to- Easy to work with. Easy to work with. <laughs> but yeah, you right. You want everybody. I mean, you wish everybody is easy to work with, but you want investors that I think understand their role as a limited partner, right? Is what you're saying. It's they're investing because you're the expert, and that's why they're trusting your expertise. And they have to be realistic about timeframes, right? Like these are illiquid, longer term investments, and that's I mean, that's one of the drawbacks to investing versus stock market, where you can trade your money in and out, right? Or just press a button and you'll, you're able to get your cash out. Yeah. Or press a button and get your cash out. But there's a lot of pros to those cons, right? I mean, I think that's what the higher return expectation is, right? That return premium based on that illiquidity. So I think as long as you're hitting those returns, I'm sure you're having no problem 
bringing investors in that fit that profile. So, you know, I know you've done a lot of deals. You've done, you know, from single family into multifamily. You share some of your lessons learned with the group. I mean, we talked about your lesson learned on the kind of the aggressiveness of the rent bumps. So what are some other things you've learned throughout the years that can help people, you know, not make those same mistakes as they're investing? Yeah. So I would say first, and this goes from a operator standpoint and also investor standpoint, is to be as transparent and communicate issues Mm -hmm. to your investors or problems that happen to come up as soon as you can versus them finding out whatever the issue is. It's best to give the bad news versus have the investor find out about the bad news. So I haven't ran into a case where they found out about the bad news, but I've learned that lesson from others and haven't replicated it. So that's one from a passive investor standpoint is if it seems as if your operator is hiding things or not fully transparent, or if they're, let's say they're doing monthly updates and they only do the updates six months, that could be from a communication standpoint. So we we're regularly in touch with our investors. So that's Mm -hmm. one thing a passive investor would want to seek in an operator. And then the second is to always raise enough money to take care of improvements for a property. I heard this mistake from other operators. And this is the thing is when learning from others, this is one quote I like is that, yes, it's good to learn from your own mistakes, but it's even better to learn from others. So there was this, (laughs) there was this one deal, 50 units in which the numbers were a little bit too tight. So we couldn't actually raise enough money to take care of the improvements. We thought we could take them out of cash flow, which was a big mistake. It ended up biting us later and we had to sell, got investors good. But that was just one of those things that if we were not at the height of the market, it could have been a different story. So that's one thing. If the deal is too tight for you to raise all the money up front, just move on to another one. Yeah. I mean, that's an awesome lesson. I think in my own experience, I mean, running into the similar situation and wanting to, you know, I think this idea that you can, you know, like, oh, we'll do those improvements out of operations. Right? Exactly. And, and, and it sounds great up front, but it just doesn't work because, you know, you're never going to have that. You're never going to be able to catch up that cash flow to really do what you need to do. And you're going to end up undercapitalized. And you're either going to have to do a capital call and ask for more money, which nobody wants to do, or you're not going to be able to fulfill the business plan, right? So I, I think that is, from the investor side, if you're hearing sponsors say that, I think that's a red flag. You want to have all your money up front Three. to do what you need to do. And that's the safe conservative play. Yeah. And I know people are going to still hear that mistake from the both of us and make the mistake themselves. And then they'll experience be like, oh, that's why they said that. So... <laughs> But uh, if you guys could put a star next to that, if have it just in the back of your head is when a deal comes tight and that's happening, that Kent and I are just spinning around your head. No, no, <laughs> there's not enough money. In that. Yeah. You know, you can't fall in love with the deal, right? I mean, that's what happens to people is they fall in love with the deal, meaning you're trying to make the numbers work. Avoid looking over the red flags. Oh, no, yep. that's okay. That's a red flag. Oh, we're good. Let me look at all the good things. That's right. Like if you're at that point where you're trying to get that creative to make the deal work, then like Sterling said, pass on the next one. There's a hundred other deals out there that you should do. And as an investor, if you see that in the business plan, again, like I think that's a thing to look out for. 
The other one I like to call out is just the assumed refi. You know, just I'll just throw that in there. I just you know, I hate to see that in underwriting because there's just so much that could happen. You may not be able to refi, may not be the right time, may not be able to find the bank to do it. You know, rates may go in the wrong direction. So assuming that's going to happen and, and putting that, baking that into the underwriting and then talking about those returns, mm-hmm. I think just is not the conservative approach to take. So, which I think in, if you're investing, you're thinking about your own money, you want to know you don't want to know what the best case scenario is, right? You want to know what the most likely scenario is. You want to know what the worst case scenario is. Yeah, so protecting like, your downside and taking calculated risk. Yeah, exactly right. Like it's more about, you know, first rule is don't lose the money, right? Exactly. And, and rule so, number two is refer back to number one. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Well, Sterling, as you're looking into the future here, obviously, you know, we're filming this right after the election. We still don't quite know you know, how things are going to shake out. But, you know, what's your forecast as you've been looking out in the future? I mean, I'm not expecting you to, you know, tell me who the president's going to end up being or anything. I mean, I'm not getting uh, into politics, Ken. Right. But just from your outlook and maybe referring back to your plan and your strategy, you know, what do you think is going to happen over the next year? How are markets going to look change? And then how are you acting based on that? Yeah, I would say one, whoever is in office, whatever gets pushed down in terms of their power or changes, taxes, whatever the case may be, is it's still up to me to figure out, navigate, make adjustments. That's pivot as an entrepreneur, business owner, a human being. So that's one thing. And I still feel things are, especially here in Indianapolis, collections are good. The occupancy is good. Even with that, the certain regulations on the eviction side, everything's been fine. Nothing too alarming. So I don't feel like here in Indianapolis, things are going to skip a beat. Sellers' expectations are still very high in terms of their prices. They may start to come down a tad bit, but still there's people that are going to be paying premiums more than I would. So just steadily taking the direct-to-owner approach and going direct. And then also just always working towards my main mission, which is being an ideal and a message to those kids who came from the environment or in the environment that I'm in that, hey, Mm -hmm. you don't have to take this path that many people take that my brother ended up taking is facing hard time due to that. You can take this path. This is how I took it. And here's the blueprint and the roadmap. So that's my big picture. What is it? North Star that I'm working towards. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, man. I love hearing that. It's not, I mean, you're taking accountability is what you're doing and you're taking accountability to say, no matter what the external factors are, you know, I'm nimble and I'm going to figure it out, right? And you're going to adjust and you're going to pivot, like you said. So love that attitude. And that was a a question I asked my little one. So I have an eight-year-old, just imagine me with a full head of hair like Tarzan. (laughs) And so I asked her, what are things we can control and what the things we can't control? And she said, we can control what goes on on the inside and from that standpoint, but we can't control what goes on externally. So it's the Mm -hmm. same thing that goes back into the election. Whatever happens, it is what it is. But I know that whatever the case is, that me as a person, I still have to figure it out. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, you're, and you're teaching mindset to your eight-year-old. I mean, that that's what it's all about, right? Like that's the key to success. That's it. Just, oh, you, you can, just took my key to success. You just, oh man, well, I'm going to steal your thunder, but it, it's the most important thing, right? I mean, like you said, you can control how you react to the situation. You can't control the situation, but you can control your reaction. And that's the key to, I think, being an entrepreneur and being an investor too, right? Is like, you know, the worst thing you can do in the down market is panic and sell, 
right? You got to exactly. be able to, to hold steady and see through what's going on, have a vision and find those opportunities. And I, I think that's what, what you've done and I'm sure what you'll continue to do, man. So I appreciate you giving your wisdom here on the show today. Oh, for sure. So last segment that we have before I let you go is the keys to success. And I want to ask you a couple questions here and, and get your thoughts to help everybody else level up out there. So what is the one question that every investor should be asking their deal sponsor before they make an investment? Oh, gosh. Mm. Man, you asked this at the beginning and I should have cued something in <laughs> is tell me about the deals that didn't go according to plan and how did you end up navigating through those? Mm-hmm. So that would be one question. I believe I've had that several times and well, not several times, a very select few amount of times. And I would say to ask that more and really just understand from the operators of their response. Do they stutter quite a bit or mm-hmm. do they actually, does it sound transparent in terms of what they're actually communicating? Because on my side, everything's not rosy. We do have our good deals and our ones that have had home runs, but there's been some deals that done okay. And we've had to make pivots just due to the market. And that's just one of the names of the game, but it's how you exactly pivot during those tough times. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And you're looking for, sounds like one, their response. I mean, are they being honest? Are they being transparent? But two, yeah, their ability to pivot and be nimble. I think that's a key quality to any sponsor's success. I think it's a really insightful answer. Next question, what are you most proud of in your career? I would say my... What I enjoy most is the DMs and the people reaching out to me via email that say, thank you so much, Sterling, for the information that you put out there. I've been able to get my first deal. It changed my life, my mindset. I've been able to overcome limiting beliefs. So that's what I would say I'm most proud of in terms of I really don't look at myself as like a motivational speaker or anything. I just share my story in hopes that it does provide some fuel and insights to others that, hey, wherever you are in life, that there's still a way for you to get to where you're going. Instead of complaining, just ask better questions. How can I do something versus just complain and not do anything about it? Mm -hmm. Awesome. And what's one book that everybody should be reading? If you haven't read it already, there is a book, Shoe Dog, that is by... Phil Knight. Have you read that book, Kent? No, I haven't. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. It's Phil Knight is the founder of Nike. Yeah. And this was one book I read and I stayed up all night, multiple nights reading it. And it felt like I was actually there in a couple of the, in multiple times. It was Mm -hmm. that well written. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely adding that to the list. And last but not least, what is your number one key to success? Mindset. Huge. If there's, I feel I could share all the tactics, the strategies, the tools, but if someone doesn't have the right mindset, it's like a thermostat. Mm -hmm. Their mindset, they could be capped out at 50 degrees. And in Mm -hmm. order for them to get that first deal, they need to be at 60 degrees. So Mm -hmm. they'll always find some way to sabotage themselves if they don't have the necessary, let's say they have a limiting belief or let's say someone wants to be a millionaire. However, they have a limiting belief that says wealthy people are bad people or rich people. Mm -hmm. In order to Mm -hmm. get to that point, they have to do unethical things. And if someone is is evil, right? Exactly. Money is the root of all evil. Mm -hmm. So 
it's one of those things that's your thermostat. So if you're at 50 degrees and in order for you to become wealthy, you need to be above that. And unless you don't get have the right mindset, you'll never get past that threshold. So Mm -hmm. no, that that's awesome, man. I couldn't agree more. One follow-up bonus question to mindset. What do you do to develop and maintain your good mindset? I would say one, I don't watch the news in terms of what's going on with the election, all politics and that. I understand to a minimal, like on a high level, because people inform me and all. Yeah, I don't want to go that. But I didn't even know the NBA playoffs was the NBA playoffs until like when the Lakers won the championship. So that just going to show you how much out of the. So that's one thing is cutting out the news. And then on a daily basis, I'm always listening to something that is self-improvement. And what really helped me in my early 20s when I took a different trajectory in life, more for the when I had this like good experience and. Well, not good experience, but this aha light bulb experience that I started on the self-improvement path and really started feeding my mind positivity, removing, replacing a lot of limiting beliefs with more empowering. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. So keep the garbage out. Don't listen to the the evening news, right? Yes. Or really most of what is out there these days. But yeah. (laughs) And two, then feed yourself positivity. You know, so you listen to something positive every day. Yeah. And third is if someone is toxic, that's around you, even if I don't even want to say family, but even if it's friend, you just have to cut them out because that they're just going to keep draining you. And it's like crabs in a barrel, I believe is the analogy is Mm -hmm. you're that one that's looking to get out and they'll just grab you right back in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to that. Like, I mean, maybe it's cliche, but you hear about, you know, you are the average of your five closest people or whatever it is. But I think that really is true. I mean, you're going to achieve or basically not achieve similar things to what those around you are doing, right? So you surround yourself by good people, feeding yourself positivity, keep the negative things out. And yeah, man, I think those are all great tips. I appreciate you giving us those little tidbits at the end. Well, Sterling, man, it's always a pleasure to connect. Thank you so much for coming on the show and giving value to our listeners today. How can folks get a hold of you if they want to hear more about your story? Yeah. So one is you can follow me on Instagram. It's Sterling White Official. One more time, that's Sterling White Official. And then also my company website is sonderinvestmentgroup.com. That is S-O-N-D-R investmentgroup.com. Awesome. And we'll put all that in the show notes so that you guys can reach out to Sterling. So Sterling, Thanks again. And always a pleasure, man. Can't wait till next time. All right. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.